Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. In today's episode, we're going to meet Richard Daphner, the architect behind Spring Street Salt Shed in the intersection between Spring Street and West Side Highway in Manhattan. A pretty mundane project on the face of it, a building for storing salt, or as Richard puts it, a giant salt shaker without the shaking. On the other hand, he says, perhaps one of the most complicated projects he'd ever worked on. This extraordinary sculptural building, often the venue for fashion shoots, didn't come cheap. A total investment of $18 million went into this pristine and historic location where Canal and Spring Street meet the Hudson River. Richard will share with us how this fascinating project came about and the many challenges he had to overcome to complete it. But first, a story about Arrow Sarin. There's a famous architect, uh, uh, Arrow Sarin, I'm sure you've yes. heard of him, and he spoke very slowly. A friend of mine worked for him years ago. And he spoke so slowly that some of his clients would get very antsy. So at one presentation that my friend attended, somebody said to Arrow, Arrow, could you speak faster? And he thought a moment, and he puffed on it. In those days, architects smoked pipes. So he puffed on his pipe. He said, no, but I could say less. <laughs> I, I love that, because I'm, I'm with the saying less. Uh, you're with department. the less, less is more. Uh, less is more. Less is more yeah. Why don't we start with you telling me a little bit about your company and your, your background. We're sitting here in your beautiful office in Midtown Manhattan, Broadway, and you are about 150 architects. 115. 115. So how did this all start? It started uh, 54 years ago in my living room with a... Uh, portable drafting table, and a uh, three years of working for various New York architects. Behind me, a short stint in the United States Army in the uh, Corps of Engineers. And uh, the fact that having worked for, I think, seven architects in my first three years in New York and having been laid off or fired from almost all of them. <laughs> I realized that my path to the future might be better on my own. Uh, so very luckily, I, I uh, through friends uh, for whom I had done a small kitchen renovation on the Upper West Side, introduced me to a Columbia professor whose brownstone I then designed. And fortuitously, the contractor for that uh, brownstone after the project, he liked me, and he said, yeah, I have a friend who lives next door to me who would like to build a factory. Do you think you could ever build a factory? I said, of course. My answer to any question was, of course. So his friend turned out to be Leonard Lauder of the SD Lauder Company, which was then a small, uh, maybe 50 or 60 employees. Uh, and I, with a colleague, Sam Brody, I designed their first factory on Long Island. And actually, by sheer coincidence, this morning on my way to the office, I got a phone call from Leonard Lauder saying that today was the 50th anniversary of the completion of the plant. And could I come to the celebration? He 
his secretary neglected to invite me, and I said no because I'm meeting with Anders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, important. But today is the 50th anniversary. Oh my so that was the beginning of uh, my practice. But then, even more fortuitously, the uh, Estee Lauder, the founder of the company, wanted to do something good for New York City, and with her son Leonard. Uh, they wanted to rebuild one of the playgrounds in Central Park. And they asked me if I could design a playground. And I said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my, my wife is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. And at the time, she was uh, getting a PhD in psychology. So she steered me to the appropriate sources to learn how to learn about play. Uh, Piaget, Bruno Bettelheim, and I designed the first adventure playground in Central Park, which is still there, and subsequently wrote a book about playground design, which has become a kind of cult classic in that small uh, field. And those two projects really launched my career. I started doing uh, school renovations. I got a school commission from New York when I was in my late 20s and uh, slowly built the practice to where it is now, with, with bumps along the road, of course. So the lessons here is, uh, of course I can. That is what... Uh... Yes, and, uh, and some luck. You know, the expression, <laughs> better to be lucky than smart, but uh, if you can be both, it's, uh, it's helpful. So let's talk about the salt shed, and we have okay. a, a wonderful little uh, model of it here in front of us now. For you listeners can't see that, but uh, you can probably Google it. So the, the salt shed, although it's probably our smallest project ever, it's 5,000 square feet, it's a tiny building, is really one of the most fascinating stories in my 54-year practice, because it involves, one of the great things about architecture, it involves almost everything involves the society around it, the neighborhood around it, uh, the technology of building, environmental issues, aesthetic issues, almost everything. And this little project uh, embodied all of those. So it began as a very humble salt shed. Uh, in the winter when it snows in New York, uh, there are two things you can do. If it's a blizzard, they plow the streets yeah. and try to get rid of the snow. But if it's only a light dusting or if the first few inches, uh, the sanitation trucks go out. This is a military organization, and they go out like uh, in a military campaign, and they have salt spreaders on their trucks. The salt spreader is a spinner under the truck, and the salt gets blown all over the street. Hmm. And salt uh, melts the ice, basically, uh, and works unless there's 12 inches of snow or something. So the salt, huge amounts of salt are required, and they have to be stockpiled. So the typical salt shed in New York City is four, three or four walls, a pile of salt, and possibly a fabric covering. So when we received the commission uh, with, with our colleagues at WXY Architecture to do both the three sanitation garages in the big building across Spring Street and the salt shed, the first 
thought for the small for the salt shed was the typical three four four concrete walls and a covering of synthetic fabric. Yeah, I remember that site. It wasn't very pretty. It was like no, fenced was, in, and there was always trucks there. Yeah, there was a one-story brick building, which was by the sanitation uh, their building, and right next to it is the. Uh, ventilation structure for the Holland Tunnel, which goes directly under both sides of the salt shed, which is one of the technical challenges of this. There are thousands of people coming underneath this site in tunnels, coming having just crossed the river, yeah. which is another fascinating story for you, because the, <laughs> the Holland Tunnel I would ask you, why was it built? It was built because there were some blizzards in New York that were so extreme that the Hudson River freezed over. And New York City, Manhattan, was not able to get coal for furnaces. And the city fathers and mothers were afraid that people would freeze to death. That was the instigation for the first tunnel under the Hudson River, which was the Holland Tunnel. The Lincoln Tunnel came wow. afterwards. So when was this, approximately? What was in the 19-teens. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Ah, there were severe blizzards in New York, and, and the river, you know, before global warming, the river occasionally froze completely, and people could walk across from New Jersey. It's incredible. So, so the, the way, you, so there was a competition for this particular. Site. There was a competition for the uh, selection of the architect, uh, because we've done uh, a great deal of public work. We were on a on a uh, list, and we obtained the commission. So. Our first design was uh, rejected on a number of counts. So you have to understand uh, architecture in New York City, uh, public architecture, is very much involved by, involves the community. Yeah. Uh, New York, Manhattan has 12 community boards. Mm -hmm. And each board, which is made up of volunteers, uh, has an advisory voice which you can say, we hate this, we like it, build it, don't build it. Uh, it's not legally binding, but it does affect the city councilman and the mayor and the borough president. They listen to the community board because they want to be responsive. So that's mm -hmm. one group mm -hmm. that has some say in this. Group number two is the Public Design Commission, formerly known as the New York City Art Commission. And this was formed at the end of the 19th century to uh, make sure that the sculptures that were put in city parks and the lampposts would be of a high visual quality. So this is now morphed into a group, uh, it's a fascinating group. It's made out of representatives of the Metropolitan Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the New York Public Library, an architect, a landscape architect, a painter, a sculptor and a lay person. Oh my goodness. And they answer to the mayor of the city and they meet uh, regularly. So they evaluate projects so, from an aesthetical point of view? Yes. So every project done on city-owned property, which means every sidewalk, every lamppost, every public library, etc., with a few exceptions, uh, an architect or an engineer or an artist who's proposing public art 
has to go to the Public Design Commission and gain their approval. So they were not happy with uh, a simple salt shed, at, uh, primarily because of the location. So the interesting thing about this project, it's the most mundane project in the sense that it's a container for road salt. That's it. It's a big salt shaker without the shaking. <laughs> However, it's on perhaps one of the most honorific or important sites in New York City, where Canal Street, which was the former canal with, uh, designating uh, the original settlements in Lower Manhattan, and the Hudson River, which probably is the raison d'etre for New York being here in the first place. So very appropriately, uh, the Art Commission, uh, the Public Design Commission, said this should be a, an important, visually yeah. acceptable structure. The third aspect was the City Planning Commission, then headed by Amanda Burden. And she was, uh, it was Mayor Bloomberg. Yeah. And uh, Amanda and the City Planning Commission had a great voice in all things aesthetic in New York. Uh, so Amanda requested that this be an iconic, enigmatic structure. Yeah. And then the community itself <laughs> <laughs> insisted that nothing of the kind be built here at all. And on the grounds that the salt would leak out and kill their offspring. I mean, and famous people, uh, Tony Soprano, um, the, uh, Gandolfini, Lou Reed, uh -huh. others who just happened by coincidence to live in fancy condos just across the street, uh, all claimed that the, having a salt shed at this location would irreparably harm the neighborhood. So, so there are lots of parties here to navigate. So how do you do so? You, so you as an architect become more like a politician. Then. Yes. You have to understand the political landscape, what people are doing, why they're doing it, and maneuver yes. in between. Yes, and that's part of the skill of uh, skill set of public architecture. It's not, you know, most people think architects uh, do a sketch on a pad, you know, maybe Frank Gehry or, or somebody like that does, and then somebody builds it. It's, Certainly not the case uh, in New York. So the community's <clears throat> resistance was ultimately boiled down to the requirement that nobody be able to look into this building and mm -hmm. see the objectionable pile of salt. Being you know a few hundred yards from the Hudson River, which is full of salty water, <laughs> and that no salt should leak out of the building, yeah. I guess, for the same reason. So given those parameters, uh, we came up with a, a two-year process of alternatives. And uh, the technical aspect, which really informed the final form, was that uh, 5,000 tons of salt are very heavy. Yeah. When you pile it up 40, 50 feet high, it requires a kind of a concrete dam to hold it back. So our structural engineers told us that to support on this small site, this big pile of salt, we would need a concrete structure that could be as thin as 
12 inches at the top, but at the bottom had to be five or six feet thick. So we're talking about a building, if, if the waters ultimately rise to the levels that uh, some scientists predict and all of Manhattan is underwater, uh, this may be the last <laughs> building standing because it's truly, I mean, it's solid concrete. Wow. So given then the fact that we had to have this uh, incredible concrete container, then the architectural challenge, a concrete container that had to be fully enclosed, that wouldn't let the salt leak out, that had to be enigmatic and iconic and fit on a triangular piece of land. Uh, so ultimately, the, 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 the visual problem for an architect is how do you make a, a big concrete box visually interesting? And the answer, in a way, comes from crystals and salt crystals. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my, I was born in Poland, and one of my uh, visits with my father years ago was to a salt mine in Poland where I brought back some crystals of salt. Uh, crystals in nature fragment into facets or faces. And so we thought, why not create facets in the concrete that would enliven the form, uh, do different things with light as, as he went around. And if you look up in my office there, uh, these were models that were generated in our office by computer and then sent to a 3D prototyping shop mm -hmm. which made these small models. I see. So there are eight seven or eight, uh, there's seven up there. Yeah. There are two more down here. These are actually three more. And these were all different shapes that we tried. Hmm. And some were, our engineers told us we couldn't have these cantilevers, which I wanted to have so that the sidewalk would get even wider and people could walk under the building. Yeah. And the engineers told us that was due to the weight of the salt that would be prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. So even though the building became more expensive than the uh, original canvas covered four walls, yeah. uh, an architect in the public sector always has to be cognizant of money. I mean, every dollar that this salt shed cost came out of public coffers. Yeah. And another agency in the city, the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, Office of Management and uh, Budget, has to approve every expenditure. So as the cost went up, uh, we had to then pare it down. Some of these were too expensive. Mm -hmm. So the, the final form is the one that you see on the desk in front of you. So it has uh, 57 facets. 57 different planes. So what's nice about it, you can see in the yeah, it's beautiful. photographs, is as the sun goes around or as the lights go on underneath it at night, every facet you know, uh, catches the light, reflects it differently. So it turned out to be enigmatic, iconic. <laughs> one of the compliments I got was that uh, in one of the architectural magazines, it said some people driving up the Westside Highway think that this is the Whitney Museum. Yeah. 
That's very good. It is good. It's a beautiful building, and, and I, I'm sort of intrigued by how you said that you, you said that it was the most simple building, or what, how did you phrase it? Uh, it's the most ways, mundane. It's the simplest building I've ever designed, and in some ways, it's the most complicated. Yes, uh, most complicated in the sense that there, the uh, involved parties were the most and the most uh, intense, and the criteria for designing it were complicated. What you see is what's above ground. Yeah. So now what's above, below ground is a big yeah. part of the expense of this. We, the, when the Holland Tunnel comes into Manhattan, it forks. Uh, one fork goes on the Spring Street, the other fork goes under Canal Street, and the salt shed is right at the junction between the two forks. So we could not drive piles, for example, because they might damage a very fragile tunnel, which is underground and coming from underwater. So every pile had to be carefully drilled between these two tunnel shafts. We had to put uh, vibration sensing equipment inside the tunnels during the construction, or the contractor did. Yeah to make sure that nothing that was being done for either the garage or the salt shed would disturb the tunnel, which is one of the main arteries, uh, of course, into New York City. Uh, so in that regard, and also I think of all the buildings we've done, this is probably the most prominent location. Yeah. I mean, this is a location that everybody knows and you know, perhaps one or 200,000 people a day yeah, pass. I find that fascinating that you have, uh, even though you, you're talking about all these different communities that you have to address and all these fractions and organizations, that they actually had the courage to do a thing like this. Because wouldn't this be a sort of a, a prime real estate where the Department of Sanitation would say, let's sell this, uh, this part? And no, it's, it's too small. I think had it been a larger site, uh -huh. they might have considered it. But uh, there's a fierce competition for space for infrastructure in the city. Mm -hmm. you know, the population of the city has grown by about a million people in the last 15 or 20 years. It will continue to grow. All those people need, uh, they, they create solid waste, yeah. they create sewage, and one of our other areas of uh, architecture has been uh, sewage treatment, and I can talk about that as well. <laughs> uh, but. The city is desperate for places to house its fire stations, mm -hmm. police stations, uh, sanitation facilities, uh, sewage, water supply. You know, people don't realize that uh, that the kind of architecture that we do, which I would call essential architecture, we've done the the uh, major. Uh, filtration facility for New York City's water with mm -hmm. an, under an engineering contract with our colleagues at uh, Hazen and Sawyer, which is upstate in an undisclosed location where 90% of the city's water comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done, with engineering firms, the design of various uh, uh, sludge dewatering. You know, again, there's a whole story what happens when you flush the toilet, yeah. which is very few people 
think about, out of sight, out of mind, yeah. but no, <laughs> it's going somewhere and something has to uh, be done with it. And perhaps our most interesting project in that regard is Riverbank State Park. Uh, there is a sewage treatment plant in West Harlem, which is huge, it's a 27 acre facility called the North River Pollution Treatment Plant. And some years ago on the roof of it, we designed the third most visited state park in New York State, hmm. which is Riverbank State Park. And that was, in a sense, like the salt shed, that was created by the resistance of, the, of a neighborhood to a facility. Nobody wants a salt shed in their front yard. Nobody wants a sewage plant in their front yard. In the case of the sewage plant, the federal, state, and city governments said to the Harlem community, uh, we have to build this sewage plant here, but we will give you a $130 million state park on the roof yeah. as part of our negotiation or giving something to the community. Yeah. In this case, uh, the city uh, said, you know what? We're going to spend more money, ultimately, I think almost $20 million, yeah. to create something that will not offend anybody in the neighborhood, which will reflect the importance of the sanitation department in our life. Uh, in some ways, the sanitation department is even more critical than the police or the fire. You know, when, when countries like Italy uh, don't collect garbage, yeah. It's a huge health hazard. So, so this building is the result of that. I understand. Can you tell me a little bit about how, so how do you then build something like this? I'm fascinated when I walk around it to see, okay, so they were forms, or, and then you poured concrete into those forms, but they, they have a very intricate, as you said, there are 57 facets. I, yes. mean, I mean, there must be a, a jigsaw puzzle to, to get that thing. Very much like that. So. I mentioned before that uh, this building was designed on a computer. Uh, in my 54 years of practice, when I began practice, architects had drafting boards and T-squares and you know something people will recognize from the past. We drew in pencil on paper. Some 30 years ago, there was a revolution uh, caused by inexpensive computers with strong graphic capability. So now when I take you for a tour in the office, you will see 100 young architects basically looking at screens and designing on the computer. And they are designing in three-dimensional programs. So where when I began my practice, we drew in two dimensions on pieces of paper, and we sketched to try to give a client or ourselves an idea, what would this look like in three dimensions? Uh, now we actually design in three dimensions because the computer programs have the capability to create on the screen a three-dimensional model, which we can then uh, send, or now we have our own machine where we can make a model, three-dimensional model in the office. So when we design this building, the contractor for the building took our three-dimensional files, which is a computer file of you know, trillions of bits, and he sent this file to a factory that cuts styrofoam for concrete molds. Mm -hmm. 
So somewhere in this factory was a computer-operated machine that had a steel wire that was heated to red hot and computer opera robotically operated. So it would cut through a piece of styrofoam that was four feet thick and eight feet by eight feet, a huge piece of styrofoam in a shape which exactly mirrored the negative of the concrete. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these forms were coated with a hard finish. They were brought to the site. And steel bars were put inside where the wall would be. And on eight-foot levels, concrete was poured against these forms. Now, the forms could not have been made had not we had a computer model and had not the factory had the capability to robotically cut these forms. Hmm. Again, in, in, in previous times, I mean, there were very complicated buildings built before this, the TWA terminal at, uh, at JFK Airport, Aerosaranen. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, but that was like a huge piece of wooden cabinet work done by, by craftsmen, and then concrete was poured against that. Mm -hmm. So do I understand it correctly that you had these forms that you then put there, you pour the concrete in, and Correct. then you put the next form, and you pour the concrete in. So, right. it's, so it's, you're sort of building it uh, with these. You're building it like a layer cake I see. in layers <laughs> eight feet high. So every time you finish a layer, yeah. you let the concrete sit for a day or two. It cures very quickly. And there are more steel bars uh, sticking up. You take the forms away. You put the next, I'm, I'm sorry, you actually leave the forms because then the next level of forms is put on. You pour another eight feet and then so forth. The building is a little over 70 feet high. Yeah. So there, there were, I think, uh, eight layers. I'm sorry, there were almost 10 layers uh, going up. And when all this is done, then you take the formwork away. Yeah. And what's left is precisely what you see when you walk by. There is uh, a lot of different variations of concrete. So how do you yes. arrive at, uh, another, at your mix? <laughs> another saga. Every, every piece of this building is a saga. So concrete can be the crudest, ugliest thing. Uh, it's a material that was invented by the Romans uh, sometime uh, BC. Uh, it's a mixture of lime, uh, cement, aggregate, sand, stones, and water. So for this building, because we knew that we wanted the, the concrete to really be a, a thing of beauty, uh, we hired yet another consultant. Architects work with consultants. We don't design how thick the concrete should be. We work with a structural engineer. Uh, we work with a lighting consultant. We work with a civic, civil engineer that does the drainage. So we also worked with a leading concrete consultant who is the world expert on concrete. How do you get it a certain color? How do you get it to pour? evenly. How do you get it to have a nice surface? How do you get it to have a nice color? And on the color, we even consulted, again, with the Public Design Commission. Their architect, uh, Jim Polchak, a colleague of mine, actually came to the site. We poured 
eight or 10 different colors of concrete. And we looked at it and we said, you know, this is, this one's too dark, this one's too light, this one's too pink, this one's too gray. That's the right one. And so that goes into the mix. So at the concrete plant, uh, the concrete mixers are told you're going to have 850 pounds of this sand that comes from this river in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have small stones, no bigger than this much. And that's going to come from a gravel pit somewhere here. And there'll be some admixture that will make it flow and something to keep it from making little bubbles, yeah. air entraining. I mean, something as simple or you think is simple yeah. as concrete is a science. And so we are not, architects are not scientists of concrete, but we know what we like. We, we know the look we're looking for. And with this uh, wonderful consultant, his name is Reg Huff, mm -hmm. Uh, who has consulted with I.M. Pei and some of the most, uh, the National Gallery in Washington, you know, the most beautiful concrete structures probably in the world, yeah. used our colleague and consultant yeah. to get a beautiful concrete. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a critical uh, decision how you design the concrete because, uh, as you said, it changes uh, uh, over the day and in the night when it's lit up and when it's raining on it and when it's dry. So it, it, it really has a this incredible quality. I, 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 love, I like it. It's like an abstract painting for me. I think it's wonderful. You can see different th shapes and forms in it. And, uh, so, and, and you're right. I mean, you're looking for the entrance to the museum, and you're there. You, you, you know, you're wondering, how do I get in here to see what's, what's in here? So here's an interesting, uh, no good deed goes unpunished aspect. This building has become so popular for model shoots that uh, some of the paving around it has been damaged by people driving their vehicles on and having the models set up in front of it because it's a perfect background for a hip model. So I mean, I'm, I'm flattered, and it's a lovely thing, but you know, the building suffers a bit. Can I ask you the angle of repose, 32 yeah. degrees? What is that about? OK, so if you pile the pile of salt on our table, yeah. and this may be even work with table salt, it'll make a mound, a little mini volcano. Mm -hmm. I mean, a volcano is like a pile of uh, lava. Yeah. So if you measure the angle, how much it rises, it's about 32 degrees which means if you pile more stuff at the top, it'll run down. The volcano will get bigger and bigger, but the sides are always at the same angle. I mean, this is happening as we speak on the big island or wherever there's an active volcano. You yeah. know, you, more stuff can come out, but the volcano never gets steeper yeah. uh, because if it gets steeper, the stuff runs down the side until it finds its angle of repose. It's a wonderful term, hmm. it's like, uh, you know, your angle of repose is if you lie down on your couch, and when you finally <laughs> fall asleep, that's your angle of repose. <laughs> so when, when the salt crystals stop running down the side of this thing, uh -huh. that's the angle. So why isn't this a pyramid then? Why is it? Uh, because I, I thought that the, the, the salt was sort of pushed up on the oh, side. It is. Now, if, if you put a big concrete wall on one side of a volcano, 
it would be a wall on one side and the angle of repose on the other. What I we've see. done, because we wouldn't want this to run out onto West Street, yeah. we've created three walls. So the, uh, the salt is pushed inside. Inside of this, there are two front end loaders. They're yeah. tractors with big shovels. And they're constantly pushing sand up. Up on top. Salt. The sand is, is uh, you know, I know I said sand. There's a wonderful Japanese movie called Woman in the Dunes. And a, a man is invited to come to this woman who lives in a house surrounded by sand dunes, which have their own angle of repose. And he spends the rest of his life shoveling. And of course, he can never get out, because the more you shovel, the more it runs down. It's a beautiful, beautiful black and white movie. So we're pushing the sand against three walls, but wherever there's a in between, the angle that the salt runs down is 32 degrees. So that's how we, that's why the building is taller at this end than at this end, because it wouldn't make sense to make the whole building 70 feet tall, because the back of it would never take more than wherever the sand comes down to the floor. Yeah, yeah. be a waste of space. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. It's funny to be able to talk for hours about a salt shed, but you know, I, I feel having been in this profession for years that if you if you dig at almost any anything in, in anywhere, there's a, always a fascinating story behind it. I mean, nothing is as simple as it seems on, on the surface, and I think this is a good example of that. Oh, it's 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 a great example, and it's, it's an incredibly beautiful building. So, so what has it been now that it's built and it's there? What are the reactions? What what, are, what is the feedback? Do you personally feel feel good about this? I do. I feel great. If you on the wall behind you, actually, uh, there are several magazine covers where the salt shed was on the cover. Uh, it's a wonderful. Uh, punctuation to my long career, yeah. and uh, I love it. I love the fact that uh, people like it. I like the fact that it was originally very much resisted and became uh, not only uh, accepted, but appreciated and liked. Yeah. And many of our projects are like that. Uh, Riverbank State Park, the one I mentioned, originally strongly resisted by the Harlem community. And now the fact that the park is there has made the West, Western Harlem extremely uh, popular place uh, to live. Most of what we do is what I call civic architecture, public architecture. The schools, we do a great deal of housing, mostly affordable housing. Yeah. Uh, we've done a number of subway stations in New York. Our other project, which has received the most uh, recognition recently, is the new subway station at 34th Street and 11th Avenue, the Hudson Yards Station. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's the end of the, uh, the extension of the number seven subway yeah. to Hudson Yards. If you've been in, and very uh, interesting because it was originally Mayor Bloomberg wanted the Olympics, the 2012 Olympics, were going to be at Hudson Yards. Wow. And the city decided to build a new subway station there. We didn't get the Olympics. London got the Olympics. 
but the subway station went ahead. Mm -hmm. The fact that there was a subway station now made those entire yards over the railroad tracks yeah. a desirable, accessible location. And if you, uh, the uh, subway station was opened about a year and a half, two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent 15 years on its design with my, my colleagues and partners. If you go there today, it's Hong Kong on the Hudson. It's in, have, you, have you been there? Yeah, yeah, I've been there, yeah. I was, I was, it's incredible. Yeah. There are build, and it's only half built, yeah. and there are more and more buildings going up there because there is now a subway station. I mean, it's the mantra that if you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will, they will build there, which is how New York City was developed, by extending its mass transit. So that's a big part of our practice. It's like a city within a city, though. But uh, this enormous amount of office space and yes. residential space, is there really a demand for it? I mean... Uh, well, the developers certainly hope so. Yeah. What do and you think? They know what they're doing. I think ultimately there will be. Look, the, the popu again, the population of New York and certain cities in America yeah. and the world keeps rising. People want to be here. Yeah. They want to come here. Uh, and I think the, the question for those developers, and they're very big, experienced developers, is are there enough people who can pay what they're going to have to pay for rent to live there? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that I can, is beyond my, my pay grade. And also, I'm thinking about the, the, the heavy impact on the infrastructure. I mean, I spent uh, now an hour in a cab coming up here. Uh, I mean, if there are these uh, fully fully built out Hudson Yards would put an incredibly pressure, uh, pressure on. They will, but the, the, the good thing about Hudson Yards is there's a subway there. Yeah. A brand new big subway was designed for a lot of people, yeah. terminal station. Uh, that's the way to move huge people, huge numbers of people around the city, not, not a private car. And the people, there are people who think, well, now with uh, self-driving cars and so forth, it's going to solve all the problems. It, it's going to make things much, much worse. So why are they two levels down on the seventh subway? We had to lower the station because there is a railroad track that comes from the Hudson River, mm -hmm. it goes underground at around, uh, it goes under Riverside Park. Yeah. If you go, if you've ever run up the river, the train comes on, the, on a track by the river, exposed to the air till around 122nd Street. Yeah. And then it dives into a tunnel. It goes under Riverside Park that Robert Moses in his genius built over the railroad tracks, maintaining the tracks. It dives down somewhere around uh, 60th Street, goes underground. And then there's a cut where you can see it in the 40s. And then it dives down, makes a big curve, and goes into Penn Station. We had to go under that. So if you've gone to what I call my station, 34th Street, <laughs> Hudson Yard. Uh, it's very deep. It's one of the deepest stations in the system yeah. and perhaps one of the deepest escalators yes. in New York. Uh, and that was the reason. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I, and I, I would tell everybody to, to Google the salt shed on Spring Street or go visit it even better, Spring Street and West Side Highway. It's a jewel. 
It's a wonderful uh, project, and we are, we as architects, really are privileged to do civic works that will last for a very long time and really reflect uh, the importance of all the essential infrastructure that makes New York City and every city livable. Well, you certainly succeeded in doing that. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation, access the show notes and relevant links for the episode, subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Thank you so much. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2019. Thank you so much for taking the time, and I, and I, I would tell everybody to to Google the salt shed on Spring Street or go visit it. Even better, Spring Street and West Side Highway. It's a jewel. It's a wonderful uh, project, and we are, we as architects, really are privileged to do civic works that will last for a very long time and really reflect uh, the importance of all the essential infrastructure that makes. New York City and every city livable. Mm. Well, you certainly succeeded in doing that. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you.